Jesus looked up at his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's start right off by saying that this is perhaps the most counterintuitive thing we hear from the mouth of Jesus, at least from our modern-day American capitalist and consumerist perspective. In our culture, it's pretty clear that we really believe one is blessed if they are rich, or at least if they have everything they need. Hardly anyone thinks it's a blessing or that it is blessed to be poor. What can this possibly mean for the poor to be blessed? Is it simply the promise of some future reward that is supposed to console the poor? It's easy to see how that can easily be used to oppress the poor, convince them that all their suffering and their deprivation will turn out just fine in the sweet by and by. History tells us that it was not uncommon for slaveholders in our country to use this kind of thinking to pacify the restlessness of those living in grinding poverty as slaves doing forced labor. It might be hard in this life, they were told, but you'll get your reward in the next. Now, we struggled with these questions in our Bible study group on Friday. We were reminded also that in the Gospel of Matthew and his account of this Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus say it this way, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, doesn't that get us off the hook just a little bit? If we spiritualize the meaning, maintain the spirit of the poor by taking nothing for granted or by not feeling or acting entitled, does that make a difference? Now, biblical scholars generally agree that when two different versions of something that Jesus said differ from one another, you should normally assume that the more difficult of the two is the original and that it got softened as future accounts of it were written down. Luke's gospel says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Or in Eugene Robbins, I'm sorry, Eugene Peterson's more idiomatic translation, you're blessed when you have lost it all. God's kingdom is there for the finding. In our Bible study, we also noted Jesus' ministry to the poor and to the outcast, those whom society had tossed aside and forgotten. For Jesus to relate to them at all, since most of society ignored them, passed them by, assumed they must have sinned to deserve their lot in life, and then to call them blessed was a sign that he had not forgotten them. And it is said to his disciples, neither should you forget them, because God sees them differently than you do. Now, just after we finished our Bible study, I found myself coming into the church through the side door over here uh, into the chapel when I noticed a person asleep on the landing up against the elevator, a crumpled pile of humanity, clothes askew, belongings scattered in the most disorganized way. It is not an unusual sight here at Trinity and throughout our neighborhood. I thought I knew who this person was, but I couldn't actually see his face, and I decided not to bother him. I came inside and took care of whatever it was that I had come to do, and on my way out, I went over to him 
and I asked if he was okay. He sat up, head in his hands, and shook his head, no. It was who I thought it was, one of our regulars here around the church, a gentle man, probably in his late 30s, if I were guessing. I occasionally speak with him when I see him in the neighborhood. He has never asked for anything, and normally he tells me he's doing okay. Something was different today. We talked for a few minutes about how long he had been living outdoors and how much harder that was going to be as the weather got colder and how much easier it would be to deal with other issues like getting a job or getting off drugs if you have a place to sleep at night. I asked him if he had a caseworker or anyone helping him to get into housing. He gave me the litany of shelters he's been in and all the things that have gone wrong for him, the times people have stolen all of his worldly goods. He was very discouraged. He started using drugs just to cope, and now he has an addiction problem to deal with. I asked him to get his things together, and when he was ready to come down to my office, and we would talk some more and see if we couldn't get him connected with some social services. He showed up about 15 minutes later, and as we talked in the office, he told me that his best friend had just died. T-Bear, he got a smile on his face when he said his name. T-Bear was another person he had met on the street, a veteran who had had his leg amputated. I used to see him actually pushing this friend around town in his wheelchair. In the aftermath of his amputation, T-Bear had become addicted to opioids, and he died last week from an overdose. The tears flowed down this man's cheeks as he told me how they had cared for one another, helped each other, and how much he missed him. We got on the phone and we called a nearby shelter and got him connected with a caseworker who would help him get into treatment for his own addiction and hopefully set him on the path to housing and other services. Now I tell you this little story this morning because I saw in this person who has nothing of this world's goods a kind and generous spirit, a depth of humanity. And yes, in spite of his circumstances, and his many, many problems, a kind of dignity that is very easy for us to miss. I'm pretty sure that Jesus did not want us to miss that when we look at the poor. But things seem to be headed in the other direction in our world today. We have criminalized poverty, cut benefits to the most vulnerable, even separated poor and sick children from their families at our border, Society seems to just want them to go away, just disappear, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and get with the program. Jesus is suggesting that we look at it differently. He invites us to bring a different set of eyes to the poor and the downtrodden, those who have been cast aside by society, fallen through the cracks, however we want to talk about it. Those we have convinced ourselves must deserve what they got and see in them, children, people who are children of God, just as we all are, flawed, yes, and perhaps have made some bad decisions along the way, as we all have, but human beings made in the image of God, people of value and of worth, 
who are worthy of respect and, yes, of love. In just a couple of minutes here, we'll be making a promise, as we always do at a baptism, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and to strive for justice and peace among all people, and respect the dignity of every human being. At baptisms, where we always join with the candidates in being baptized into Christ again, we always make this commitment over and over again. Now, I was dismayed this week when the president announced the appointment of Paula White as the new head of the White House's Faith and Opportunity Initiative. Perhaps you've heard of her. She is a prosperity gospel preacher, pastor of a Florida megachurch, and she has made her fame and her fortune preaching that money is a sign of God's blessing. In other words, blessed are the rich, for they get to take it all. It's a message that even our famously non-religious president can get behind, while even many of her fellow evangelicals consider her theology heretical and label it a false gospel. Her appointment to this office in the White House is just one more sign, if we need one, that this kind of spiritual illiteracy has replaced the message of Jesus in the minds and the hearts of a vast segment of the American collective spiritual imagination, now even at the highest levels of government. I would remind us today that another of the promises we make in baptism is to persevere in resisting evil. And whenever we fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. This morning, three people are about to be baptized into this faith that we proclaim here this morning. Albert Garnett decided to be baptized at the age of 86. Yeah, how about that? <clears throat> Albert's actually going to be 87 in December, but you know what? It's never too late. He told me, and I hope you don't mind if I share this, Albert, he told me that he's committing himself to Christ and to this way of life because he has seen in his wife, Cindy's life, what being a follower of Jesus means by how she lives. How about that? That's saying quite a bit, isn't it? Yeah, Cindy, thank you, Cindy. And then we have two little ones, Chase Brannon Lundberg and Isabel Grace Osbrink. Now, they haven't yet chosen this for themselves, but their parents are choosing to initiate them into this countercultural, alternative way of life along with them to follow in the way of Jesus, proclaiming good news to the poor, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and respecting the dignity of every human being. Now, these ideas will need to be observed in their parents and in all of us in their church family and reinforced throughout their lives because the current of our culture is strong and it must be resisted. And that's why we are all here, gathered in this place and around this table and this font, to support one another in the way of love. In fact, you'll be asked in just a few minutes if you as the church who witness these vows 
will do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ, to which we will all say a rousing, we will. So let me suggest today that we let this All Saints Sunday, when we celebrate the saints past, present, and yet to come, and this moment we stand at now, let this moment as we approach the waters of baptism for these three people be for each one of us a rededication of ourselves to the way of love, a time to turn our hearts and our minds again to Jesus' good news for the poor, and to strive to see with the eyes of love what God sees in each and every one of us. And when we do that, it's going to change the world. Amen.